Coming up next on Contemplate. Remember, your responsibility is to speak the truth. It's not just me on a Sunday morning up here on the stage talking about Jesus. It's you every day, in every way, in every relationship, listening to the Holy Spirit and speaking truth where you're supposed to speak truth. That was Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church in Camas, Washington, and this is Contemplate. I'm Ron Hagelgans. Great to have you along today as we continue the series Contentment in Christ. As we've seen already, Paul pulls no punches when it comes to telling people about Christ. And we're going to be encouraged today as we learn the importance of sharing our faith, too. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 18, so please get out your Bible as we join Pastor David Robinson with today's episode, recorded live at Acts Church. All right. Um, We've talked over time about unity in the church. Uh, We've talked about unity in the body. Uh, Mostly we've talked about it in the local body, but about being together, being one accord. Um, For those of you who've gone through Acts with us, we see a lot of language about the fellowship of the believers, about being together, about being in one accord, about being unified. And this is kind of the the hallmark of the church when it started. People are excited about salvation in Christ, and primarily they're just excited about that, about the fact that they can be saved. The Messiah has come. um, The King has come. Christ has come. uh, Satan and death have been defeated. Yes, we have to continue to walk through Um, in this broken world until the end, but we get to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the church is excited. The church is together. They're together as one, and that's how it sort of starts out. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 18, and then we're going to look at some, some parts of 1 Corinthians, okay? And as we do that, I want us to be thinking, thinking about ourselves thinking about our church, this local expression of the body of Christ, um, and thinking about the church as a whole, worldwide. Um, All those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, all the Christ followers in the world, I want us to be thinking about that. And I want to ask, uh, have you ask a couple questions of yourself and just start thinking through this as we go through this message. And so here's a couple questions. Um, What kinds of issues are worth breaking fellowship over? Uh, What should it take to divide us? What should it take for someone to say, I cannot worship with you? Um, Think about that a little bit as we walk through this, and and you'll see where it comes back later on in the sermon here. So um, when Christ has spoken very clearly and Scripture has spoken very clearly on an issue, it's very easy to know what we're supposed to do. And so I'm going to read you a prayer that Jesus had for his disciples at the time and for all the disciples, all that would follow him in the future, which includes you and me if you're a Christ follower, right? And so this is what he prayed. He said, this is John 17, 20 through 23. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may, may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And I just want you to keep that in mind, Christ's prayer for his church, for his disciples as we go through. So if you don't have a Bible, 
If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'll hook you up with a Bible. It's a really fantastic uh, book. So um, if you don't have yours with you, you can follow along on your phone. Just so you know, the Bible app does not have your Facebook profile on it um, if you're looking through that. And people are behind you. They can see what you're doing. All right. Um, if not, we'll have them up on the screen for you to follow along with. Last, last week, in our last message, uh, we were with the Apostle Paul. The last part of that message, he was in Athens, and he was on Mars Hill. He was speaking to the Areopagus. Uh, some of the people there, as you recall, hopefully, uh, they, some believed, uh, some followed Christ, some sort of ridiculed, and some sort of said, let's postpone this. Come back tomorrow. Let's talk about this later. And, and so Paul left them, um, and we catch up with him at the beginning of chapter 18. Let's look at verse 1. It says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. All right, Corinth. Um, map time for a second here. Uh, if you remember, we started the second missionary journey in Antioch. Uh, and then most recently, we've seen Paul on the other side of the map in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, then Athens, and now Corinth. If you follow the little red line and the arrows, you can see that uh, path that he took. So let's talk about Corinth for a minute. Uh, set the stage sort of. Corinth was a, a good-sized city in the ancient world, 80 to 100,000 people. It's about how many people were there. It's the capital of the region of Achaia. Achaia is the southern portion of Greece, which includes Athens and Corinth, um, and Macedonia is the northern portion where Philippi and, and Thessalonica and Berea are. We have a map of that, so you can just get an idea. Achaia, Macedonia. Top part's Macedonia, bottom part is Achaia. Corinth is the capital of Achaia. Okay, it's the seat of government there. Now, there's a lot of business going on in this, in this town. There's two ports there. So there's a lot of trade, a lot of business, a lot of money coming through. The ports of Lycaeum and Centria are both there. Um, and there's just, there's just a lot of trade, a lot of ships, a lot of sailors, a lot of stuff going on. And Corinth was morally corrupt. I mean, Corinth real bad. Real bad. Um, and we're not going to go into all the ways in which they were corrupt. Hopefully, we're going to get a chance to do that at another time, Lord willing, and really go through the book of 1 Corinthians and talk more about Corinth. But they were, there was a lot of immorality, okay? A lot of immorality, a lot of idol worship. It was actually really well known around the Roman world that Corinth was a very morally corrupt place very bad place. You may be able to think of places uh, that exist today that are thought of as really morally bad. Yeah, this was worse. This was really, really bad. And so um, the people were just major idol worshipers. Uh, they were majorly immoral in a number of ways. And so that's what Paul is walking into as he gets to Corinth. As he arrives, he's in this city, powerful, large, lots of money, lots of immorality. So that's where we are. Let's look at verse 2. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. So Paul meets, we meet for the first time here, Priscilla and Aquila. And this couple is a power couple for the Lord. And they're going to be uh, part of the ministry, walking hand in hand with Paul and partnering with Paul for a long time. And so we'll see more of Priscilla and Aquila. It says that they've been removed from Rome. So it's about 49 AD, Claudius got tired of the Jewish folks in Rome. So there's a lot of anti-Semitism, um, a, a lot of racism against Jews at that time in the Roman world, and Claudius didn't like Jews. And so he just said, everyone who's Jewish, get out. Everybody get out of Rome. 
And so all these Jews were dispersed out of Rome, and some of these were Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul meets here. So let's look at the next couple of verses. So because he, that's Paul, was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So Priscilla and Aquila have a trade. They're tent makers. Paul also had a trade. He would have had a trade. A lot of rabbis, a lot of guys that studied like Paul, for those of you who remember who Paul is in terms of his study, he's a very, very scholarly studied guy. But a lot of these guys would also learn a trade at the same time. So they weren't just studying the Torah. They also were keeping their hands busy with work. And that's what Paul was doing. Tent making would have been good business. Uh, travelers to Corinth would have stayed in tents. These sailors, I told you there are two ports. When they came into town, they often would have stayed in tents. And so <clears throat> there would have been pretty consistent business for Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. And we see Paul, he's, he's making tents, doing his thing, but not just making tents, right? Because we know Paul. Immediately, it's, <laughs> he goes into the synagogue and he starts to reason and try to persuade both Jews and Greeks there at the synagogue in Corinth. Let's look at uh, verses 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So, Remember that Silas and Timothy were left up in Macedonia, Thessalonica. Maybe they were ministering to Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi, the churches up there doing that. Finally, they come down uh, to Corinth where they meet back up with Paul, and they get there, and Paul is compelled of the Holy Spirit to preach Jesus as the Christ to the Jews, to boldly go out and say, look, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one. He rose from the dead. He's God. And so Paul does that, and as we have often seen, while some people are like, yes, I like this. This resonates with me. I believe it's true. Some people get very tied into their traditions, and they reject him, and that's what they do here. Some of the Jews reject him. They start blaspheming, probably saying very negative things about Jesus Christ. And so Paul, he, he shook his garments. Uh, you know, just, I don't know what that would have looked like exactly, but he, you know, it, was a, it was a symbolic gesture. It was a way of distancing himself from them. Um, this is like when Jesus, who sent his disciples out, told them to shake the dust off their feet. The passage is in Matthew 10, 13 through 15. It says, if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you bring the truth. If they reject the truth, you shake their dirty town off your feet and you roll. And there's a, and there's a strong judgment coming to those who have received the truth and reject it who have received the truth and rejected it. And Paul says, your blood is on your own heads. I'm clean. For now, I will go to the Gentiles. Um, so he's saying, listen, I told you the truth. I came in here. I spoke clearly, directly. I told you the truth. I didn't hold back from you. You didn't want to listen. And you're now responsible for what happens to you. Now, this, this sort of harkens to a passage in Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And we're going to walk through that really quick. This is the passage. It says, this is in Ezekiel 33, starting in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, 
When he sees a sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees a sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So we say, listen, this watchman that's getting set up, the job is to look out for the enemy, to look out for danger. And if the watchman is being a good watchman and looks out and sees danger and blows the trumpet, then the people will hear it. And if they decide, ah, false alarm. You've been, you know, where there's like a fire alarm that goes off and you're pretty sure it's a drill. Sure enough to bet your life to where you don't do anything about it, right? Um, I've been there at least. Um, and, and so they say, ah, no big deal. Then if they die, that's on them. Their blood is on their own head because they heard the warning and refused to accept it. But if you don't blow the trumpet, then if somebody dies, it's on the watchman's head. So Paul is basically saying, I did my part. I was faithful here. I spoke the truth to you. He didn't let fear stop him. Certainly, if anybody had a reason to fear speaking about Jesus Christ, was it not Paul? Have we not seen him beaten and persecuted and imprisoned? Is that not sort of the the whole thing that we've seen going on over and over? And yet he didn't let fear stop him. He spoke the word boldly. And they chose not to listen. And so he shakes, a, he shakes his clothes and he says, it's on you. I blew the trumpet. You deal with you now. I'm going to the Gentiles. Maybe they'll listen to me. Um, this is something to think about. The next time that the Holy Spirit compels you to speak truth in someone's life. The next time that you just feel that, that little knock on your heart that says, now is the time to say something about Jesus. Now is the time to speak some truth to this person, to this group, to whoever it is. And this happens to all of us at different times where it's just like, here and now is when I'm supposed to say, can I pray for you? You know, Can I tell you about what Christ has done in my life? And there's a fear, right? Not the fear that Paul had that we're going to get imprisoned and beaten and stoned and, and, and all those kinds of things, but a different kind of fear, a social fear, an awkwardness fear. Uh, am I going to jack with this relationship fear? Are people going to think I'm weird? That kind of thing. And that's a real fear. I'm not trying to downplay it. That's a real fear. Not as significant as a fear that Paul would have legitimately had, but a real fear. Nevertheless, when the Holy Spirit compels you when the Holy Spirit says, do this thing, you got to do it. you got to do it. And if you do it and they do make it awkward and they reject you and whatever, guess what? I wouldn't recommend like shaking your clothes at them or anything. Um, that's probably not going to go over well. But, or yelling out, your blood is on your own head. Then they're going to really have a reason to think you're weird, right? But there is, there is a sense in which you've brought them the truth. It's been put in front of them. If they reject it, they reject it. Now, The good news is is that some of these folks who are rejecting Paul now are likely the ones that we'll see later who come to know Christ. Even though they're rejecting at that point, they do come around. Remember, your responsibility is to speak the truth. It's not just me on a Sunday morning up here on the stage talking about Jesus. It's you every day, in every way, in every relationship, listening to the Holy Spirit and speaking truth where you're supposed to speak truth, learning how to speak it well, learning how to give a reason for the hope within, and speaking effectively to those who the Holy Spirit's calling you to speak to. And then whose responsibility is it? Then it's God's responsibility. God changes the heart. You're not going to change anybody's heart. I don't care how good you are of an arguer. 
I don't care how eloquent your speech is. You cannot change hearts. God changes hearts. He works with people. Your responsibility is to speak the truth. And if they reject it, then that's their issue between them and God. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 7. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So kind of anticlimactic, a little awkward, like, I'm out of here, and shakes his thing up. He walks like three steps and goes to the guy's house next door and stays there. So every time they're coming to church, it's like he's still there. Um, so kind of weird, but actually uh, you're going to see it works out pretty well uh, for, for Paul and for the kingdom of God. If we look at the next verse, it says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord, with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So apparently being in proximity to the synagogue maybe was a clever idea because Paul, even though he was no longer speaking directly to the synagogue because they were rejecting it, maybe he was having some opportunities to be around those who were around the synagogue. And in this case, Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue, ends up relenting from rejecting Christ and accepts Christ, believes his entire household is saved, and then a bunch of other people in Corinth, including, I'm guessing, some of the people who were in the synagogue who before had been rejecting Paul. They come to him. You never know what the Lord is going to do through you and your testimony. You never know what the Lord is going to do through those that he uses you to bring the word to and who come to believe in him. You never know what power and how far out those ripples are going to go. And in this case, one guy comes, then his household comes, then a bunch of other Corinthians come to know the Lord. And so it, it turns out to be an amazing thing. This guy believes his household, they get baptized, they're saved. Um, Jesus has a way of multiplying his disciples, and he does it his own way, which I think is pretty cool. So let's look at verses 9 through 11. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. All right. So, uh, Jesus comes, the Lord comes, and speaks to Paul in a vision at night. And he basically says, Hey, listen, you don't have to worry. No one's going to attack you and hurt you. Now, for Paul, I can just imagine this was probably incredibly relieving. Um, he has been in a lot of situations where that promise wasn't given, where it was, you got to speak and bad things might happen. They might start throwing rocks at you. Uh, sometimes they did. And so now for Paul to get sort of the green light with the Lord saying, listen, in this situation, I'm actually completely protecting you from persecution. You're going to have the opportunity to really disciple this group of people over a long period of time which he did over a year and a half, Paul stays in Corinth and gets to preach and teach the word of God to these people. And that's an awesome experience that these guys got to have. What an amazing way to get your church plant started, to have the apostle Paul there for a year and a half as your pastor, really, really getting you into the, the doctrines, the beliefs, what you need to know, what you need to understand. Um, it was an amazing thing for them. And so I think Paul's pretty happy at this point. Uh, let's see what happens in verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and he would have, as proconsul of Achaia, he would have been at Corinth, right? Because I told you that's the seat of government there. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. 
Uh, Gallio, we have actually a lot of information about in history from other authors outside of Scripture. Um, we know who he was. It's actually one of the ways that we're able to date this time really effectively of when this happened because we have all this information about Gallio and when he was there in this time, okay? So it would have been around 52 A.D., Gallio was kind of a famous guy. He was the brother of uh, the Stoic philosopher Seneca, um, and he was well-connected in Rome. And he, was a, he was a judge, a jurist, a, a, you know, he was a government official who had a lot of power and who was well-respected. And so any ruling that he gives, as these guys take Paul and put Paul in front of this guy and accuse him of this, any ruling that he gives is likely to have far-reaching implications beyond the city of Corinth, certainly to Achaia and maybe further. So if he comes and says, yes, Christianity is against the law, that's going to have significant impact on a lot of people who are coming to know the Lord right now. So this is a big moment in legal history for the church at this time. So let's look at what happens. It says, and when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if for a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Okay, let me set the stage a little bit here. What's the question? What's the legal question? I know you guys love it when I get all lawyer nerdy on you. Okay, what's the legal question, class? The legal question here is the Jews are saying Christianity is a new religion. It's a totally new sect, and, and we've talked before about how the Romans actually said what religions you could do and what religions you couldn't do. They did speak to those. Now, normally, they were pretty whatever about it. It's not like they were chasing down every new idea and trying to persecute it. But, of course, if you really wanted to persecute somebody, you could appeal to the law. So they're saying, hey, these guys, Paul and, and, and these people are coming in, and they're teaching people this new religion, which is against the law. They're, they're worshiping God against the law. Now, the other argument would be that Christianity has come out of Judaism, that Judaism was there, and then Christianity is, is Judaism going forward. Jesus has come. He's fulfilled it. It's part of Judaism. Now, the question is, should a judge in this case look into the specifics to figure out whether this is a new religion or a Jewish religion. I like the fact that Paul is about to make his argument. You know Paul likes to argue. Uh, that's, that's his thing. I, I, I don't know a lot of people like that, um, but I do know that, that Paul liked to argue, and, and I kind of like him for that. But he's ready to, to hold forth. He's going to give his legal arguments. He's going to give his thing. He's like, and the guy just starts talking. Gallio starts talking. Paul doesn't even have to say a word. Gallio comes out and says, listen. Give me a break. You want me to get the Torah out and start to decide whether or not Christianity is really a good part of Judaism or not? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get into your religious text to figure this out. Remember, the Jews already had multiple sects of people. We had the Pharisees. We had the Sadducees. We had the Essenes. So they were already divided. They're already split up into, into multiple things, and they certainly weren't asking the Romans to say, oh, this one, this sect, or that sect is illegal. And so when they come and say, this sect of Christians is an illegal religion, Gallio says, I'm not getting involved in that. And by the way, it's still the case to this day. So if you were to go to, to court 
and you were to say, um, you know, I don't think this person should have done this or that within the church because we think that Scripture says it shouldn't happen, or something like that, which people sometimes have done. They've asked the courts to make rulings like that. It's called a non-justiciable issue, okay? New word. Uh, a lot of letters in that one. Non-justiciable. He basically says, look, you don't have standing to come before this secular court to talk about these things. And so consistently in American jurisprudence, in American law, we have said the court will not answer questions that are specific to a religion. It goes all the way back in this era. It was still going on. Now, we have the First Amendment which makes it particularly important that the court does not come in and start making pronouncements and judgments about what's in the Bible or any text. That's important, but actually this is just a wise rule in general, and Gallio recognized that and said, the last thing I want to do is be the arbiter between people within a religion. Next time, we'll see what happens next as we continue this series, Contentment in Christ, with Pastor David Robinson. Sharing our faith in Christ can be a tough thing to do. We get all nervous and freaked out, but just like Paul, who would tell anybody anywhere about Jesus, as we just go for it, God will do the rest and lives will be changed. And now let me invite you to join us this Sunday at Axe Church. We have a terrific family of folks who love Jesus and each other, and I just know you'll be blessed. For directions and all the info you need, go to axcamus.org. That's axcamus.org. Or call 360-885-9000. I'm Ron Hagelgans. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll play the next episode for more with our teacher, Pastor David Robinson, here on Contemplate.